0: So the Garden of Eden is a story that we've all kind of heard and imagined and thought about before. There's one detail about it that honestly, until relatively recently, I never noticed or or really considered, Uh, and and that's the location of the garden. Um, So there's a wonderful ministry called the Bible Project, and they do a lot of video teaching on Scripture. And I'm going to show you just like a 20-second clip Um, uh, from the Bible Project about the location of the garden, um, and then we're going to talk about that. Will you play that clip for me? How the ancient biblical authors saw the world. On pages 1 and 2 of Genesis, God brings order to a watery wilderness, separating the skies above from the land below. Right, this is earth where we live. And then there's the heavens high above, which they saw as God's domain. But in the Bible, these spaces are not separate. They overlap. And in fact, the Garden of Eden is described throughout the Bible as a high mountain garden where heaven and earth are one. Okay, great. Um, Have you thought of Eden as a high mountain garden before? Uh, Honestly, I had not. So I actually, this is a video I watched months ago, and then I had to go do a little bit of research. And there is certainly plenty of other places in Scripture where we get some um, suggestions that Eden, the Garden of Eden is on a mountain. Um, but right here in chapter 2, there's some pretty good evidence that I had just missed. So there's this weird passage in chapter 2 about the rivers. Remember the rivers? It's like, okay, cool, we got the, the trees and God's making humanity and the animals. Oh, and there's four rivers. Let me tell you about the rivers. Um, it's weird, right? So part of the significance, there's actually a lot of significance to that, but part of the significance of that is that rivers tend to start um, high and run down, right? Every river in the world runs downhill somewhere. Uh, And so um, part of the reason that our ancestors thought about Eden as up on a mountain was because all these headwaters of the world are running um, off this mountain, off this source of the water, down into the valleys below. So um, just play with this for a minute. It's kind of interesting. So we have in this graphic the top circle representing the heavens, the bottom circle representing the earth, Remember in, in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2, we keep hearing in the day when the Lord made the heavens and the earth, uh, the realm of God and the realm of, of, of creation or, or mortals. Uh, and then Eden is this place where they overlap. And it's on this tall mountain um, where they come to be with God. So uh, this is kind of a, a small detail, but kind of an interesting and important one for us. Every time in Scripture we encounter a mountain experience, um, I think the authors of Scripture are remembering this mountain. So when Moses goes up on Mount Sinai to meet with God, or when um, Solomon builds the temple on Mount Zion, right? these are intended to be these in-between places where God comes down and people come up and we can sort of cooperate together. Right? Just keep that in the back of your head, that when we see mountains in Scripture, especially these moments where God appears on a mountain, uh, there may be a, a hearkening back uh, to the garden and um, this, this place where God abides with mortals. Okay, now, um, at the, the, oh, go back one second, I'm sorry. At the very top of that mountain, what do you see? A tree. Okay, now I love the Bible Project, and, and that they can do no wrong in my eyes. Um, but they made a little error here. How many trees do you see? How many trees should you see? Two, two right? So you can make that go away now. Thank you. Um, there should be two trees in the middle of the garden, right? There's the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, um, I would love to spend more time talking about the tree of life, but interestingly, the Scripture doesn't talk about it very much. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil, however, gets a lot of attention in this chapter. And it's going to be really important in the next chapter. So I want to try to answer or address two questions today. Um, the first is, what in the world does the tree of knowledge and good, of, of good and evil represent? Uh, and, and the second is, why does God put it in the garden? So why is it there um, and what is it? And I want to answer those um, beginning with why is it there? Um, so why does God put a tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden and then tell the man, don't eat from it, because in the day that you eat from it, you will die? And the answer is really simple. It's a test. It's a test. Um, God is testing to see whether um, Adam will be obedient. Uh, and I say this with great confidence because God tests people throughout the Bible, over and over and over again. Uh, And in the book of Genesis especially, maybe the most famous test in Genesis is when Abraham is sent up onto a mountain to offer his son, and God says, um, and that this time God chose to test Abraham. So who remembers, some of you are in school, some of you were in school in the past, who remembers tests fondly? Raise your hand. Really loved a good test. All right, some people did. That's great. Who remembers tests and is really happy they never have to do those again, or looks forward to the day when they never have to do those again? Yes. Okay. Um, so here's here's the thing about a test. A test is not designed to trip you up, to make you fail, to make you stressed. It's designed to reveal what you know. Right. It's designed to take whatever's on the inside of you that's private and put it on the outside and make it public. Do you know algebra? Well, sure, I know algebra. Great, let's find out. We'll do a test. Not right now, but I mean, like, you know, that's the idea. Um, and, and I think God works the same way um, that, that this tree is there as a test. Uh, uh, can you put that ne- my next picture up? Um, my um, love of Tim Mackey, who does the Bible Project, is extended by the fact that he also has the same love of nerd culture that I have. And so um, Tim Mackey put together this picture of. Um, Seven moments from, anybody, can you tell what movie this is from? Lord of the Rings. Okay, Lord of the Rings. This is seven moments where characters in the Lord of the Rings are tempted or tested by the ring. Okay? Um, and I would just like to spend the whole day talking about that, but I'm not gonna. Um, but let me just tell you really quickly, there are three characters in, that, in this um, movie that are tested with this ring, this ring of power. And, they're, and they fail the test. And so just briefly, one in the top corner is Smeagol, who becomes Gollum. Boromir on the right in the middle, who tries to take the ring from Frodo. And then the guy in the bottom, the main hero of the story, Frodo. And at the end of the movie, he, he fails. Right? He tries to keep the ring for himself. There are three characters that pass the test, but it's really, really hard. Uh, one of those is Gandalf. One of those is Galadriel. Oh yeah, you're helping with the, the, the mouse. Galadriel below Gandalf. Uh, and then one of those is Bilbo in the top right-hand corner. All three of them give the ring away or don't take it but it's excruciatingly difficult. Of all the characters in these three movies that are tested by the ring, only one passes the test with ease, and that's Aragorn. He's the king. Uh, and Aragorn passes the test with ease because he has known his whole life that he deserved to be the king, and his whole life he has spent trying to not be king. He's spent his whole life serving other people in quiet, secret um, unnoticeable ways so that he would never have to take on the work and the, the, the power of being king. So when the offer of power comes to him, he's practiced his whole life to say no. Right? And, and he easily just says, no, I don't want that. Uh, here's my point. Okay, you can make the ring go away. Um, tests aren't designed to make you fail. They are designed to reveal to you who you are and help you decide who you want to be. They're designed to reveal to you who you are and help you decide who you want to be. God puts this tree in the garden as a test. What the heck is the tree about then? What is this thing that we call the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Okay, so to answer that, we have to go back to Genesis 1. Um, And if you've got a Bible, you can flip it open, just look at Genesis 1. If not, you may remember some of these stories. Uh, Remember last week we, we read uh, in the beginning, um, God created the heavens, the earth, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then um, God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God separated the light from the darkness, and the light he called day, and the darkness he called night. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the first day. Okay, who, who is defining at that moment what is good? Audience, participation? God, God saw that it was good. Okay, uh, we're going to see that seven times in the first chapter of Genesis. Seven times something happens and God sees that it's good. Um, the, the word for good in Hebrew is tov. And so the, this tree is called the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra. Ra is the word for bad or evil. Tov is the word for good. So seven times God sees something and calls it tov. Now, interestingly, there is no ra yet, right? This is the tree of the knowledge of tov and ra. There is no ra yet in this story. It's never been mentioned because God just made the world and everything is still good. But we do get something interesting in chapter 2. God says something is not good. Lotov. What's not good is that man is alone. Right. So God is the one who decides what's good, and God is also the one who decides what's not good. So far in our story. Are we together? Okay, last week I gave you a teaser. And last week when we talked about the first chapter of Genesis, we talked about this pattern. God says something, it happens, God sees it and calls it good, and there's evening and there's morning, the the second day, the third day, the fourth day, etc. And I pointed out that in that pattern in Genesis 1, there are some intentional breaks in the pattern. One of those is in day 2. There's nothing good in day 2. Have you noticed this? When when God makes day 2, He makes the sky and the waters, and there's nothing good. And then day three, there are two good things. God makes the ground and calls it good. God makes the vegetation and calls it good. What is going on? Day four, there's the stars in the sky and the angels and it's good. And day five, birds and fish and it's good. And day six, land animals and good. And then humans and it's very good. So I think the intent here is that Moses is trying to tell us that God is defining good by what's good for us. What do I mean by that? On day two, nothing good happens for us. Anybody around here um, fly around in the sky on a regular basis or swim underwater on a regular basis? Like, you know, other than at the pool. No, right? So, so day two doesn't have any benefit for humans. Day three has lots of benefit for humans. We live on the ground and we eat the food of the ground. And day six, when humans are finally made, is, is like really good. God's really excited. God's saying, hey, I'm the one who defines good and bad. And I define it in such a way as to say, I think what's good is what's good for you. This is really, really important because then when we get to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God says, hey, in this partnership that we have, in this partnership where I am giving you some authority and some responsibility and and we're going to work on these things together, we're going to name the animals together, we're going to work the ground together, we're going to bring life to this world, but... Here's the thing I want to keep in our partnership. I want you to let me decide what's good and what's bad. I don't want you to do that. I want to be the one who does that. Okay, I'm going to tell you a story of three dogs. Um, Two of the dogs are my dog Riddick and my my wife's parents' dog Sophie. And I have a picture of Riddick and Sophie um, that we can just leave up for a few minutes. Um, yeah, they're really cute, right? Uh, they're, they're cute dogs. So uh, Riddick is on, the, is on the left. He's the, the tan dog. Sophie is the Springer Spaniel on the right. And um, Riddick and Sophie are pretty good buds, um, both good dogs, but good and challenging in different ways. So they're two of the dogs of, of my, my story. The third dog is a hot dog, um, partially eaten by my son Asher, sitting on the dining room table after dinner. Uh, and this is a true story. And uh, after dinner, uh, Asher got up and left his hot dog on the table because he was going to come back to it later. And the adults got up to clean up the kitchen and the kids all left. And there's just this hot dog sitting on a table. Terror story of three dogs. You know where this is going. So let me tell you that my dog Riddick is an imperfect animal. But one thing he has learned is that good dogs do not go on the table. Right? So if, if Riddick was at home alone, uh, and you left a full rack of ribs on the table, and he was alone for 10 hours, and he was dying of hunger, he would never touch those ribs, okay? But Sophie does not share that conviction. So uh, we, we turned around, uh, cleaning up the kitchen. Uh, I look back, and I see Sophie, both feet on the t- uh, table, um, grabbing that hot dog, pulling it out of the bun, and dropping it on the floor, Right? Uh, And as soon as she drops on the floor, Riddick's radar goes off. Because Riddick knows you can't eat food off a table, but off the floor is fine. So Riddick is in the room lickety-split, and these two dogs are converging on the hot dog. Um, And this happens in seconds. And so I go immediately into angry dog owner mode, and I say, Bad dog! Bad no! Bad dog! And the reaction of the dogs was striking. So Riddick put his tail between his legs, ran around the dining room table to get away from me, through the living room, through the hallway, and all the way to the back door to go outside because he was so upset that he got called a bad dog. Sophie took a step back and then a step forward (laughs) and went right back for the hot dog, which I managed to get. Um, here's, Here's the point of the story. Riddick wants me to decide what's good and what's bad, what makes for a good dog and a bad dog. Sophie wants to be the decider of that herself. Um, And what Sophie doesn't understand, she's not my dog, so she's okay, but if she was my dog, she would not remain in Eden very long if she kept eating (laughs) off the table. Are we together? Yeah. Uh, Okay, you can take the dogs away. I don't think we need hot dogs or magic rings or divinely appointed fruit to test us on this issue. I think every day of our lives we are given the choice whether we will believe God about what God says is good or bad for us or whether we will make up our own minds about what we think is good or bad for ourselves. This is what this tree of knowledge and good and evil is all about. And, and b- believe me, all sin, all sin, all sin comes from this one fundamental failing that we want to be the ones who define what's good and bad instead of letting God do that for us. God says, um, giving my money away is towed for me and hoarding it is raw. God says keeping my body pure from sexual immorality is tov for me and lusting is raw. God says hating my fellow man and my heart is raw and forgiveness is tov, um, but I'm not sure I believe him. And so in all those places, I say, yeah, but you know what, God, maybe I have some better ideas than you do. Some of your ideas are kind of old-fashioned and out of date and you're not really up with the culture now, God. And, and you know, we don't do things the way we used to do it a long time ago. And God, why don't you let me decide what's good and not good, and I'll just follow my own rules. By the way, one of the reasons we don't like letting God define Tove and ra in our lives is because He often doesn't pick the stuff that we would pick. Uh, often instead, God says, hey, you know what? It's going to be Tove for you to see this really delicious fruit and not eat it. It's going to be tov for you to deny yourself. It's going to be towed for you to not seek out immediate gratification, but wait for something better. It's going to be towed for you to be faithful to this one person instead of going and running around after a bunch of people. Um, God says, "Um, what I think is good is not going to be intuitive for you. You have to trust me. You have to trust me. Uh, So then we get to the story of Jesus. Um, and, and, and Jesus comes to the disciples with a radical new definition of what is good. <clears throat> Jesus says, um, you know what, if you want to be good, if you want to be close to God, if you want to follow God, uh, you need to deny yourselves and take up your cross and follow me. And, and the disciples, kind of like you and me, are like, well, that doesn't sound good. The cross sounds really bad. Uh, And and denying myself sounds really bad. Jesus, is there any other way that I could follow you other than that? And he says, no, following me means trusting me that I know what's good for you, better than you know. That I know what's bad for you, better than you know. The Christian life really comes down to a relatively simple choice. Will we believe Jesus when he tells us what's good and bad or will we trust ourselves first? Paul David Tripp tells a, a great story of his own teenage son. Um, his, his teenage boy went over to a friend's house. Um, some kids were getting together to watch movies. And um, I think this was back in the ancient days when you like, went to Blockbuster to rent movies. Um, but anyway, they had movies to watch. And it happened to be that his friend's parents were going out that night. And so uh, right after the parents left, his friends pulled out the movies that they had rented and Paul says immediately his son knew these were not films that he should see. It was immediately clear he shouldn't see these films. And so he had to figure out what he could do. And he really had three options. He could watch them and just let them decide what's good. He could try to convince them to change their mind or he could leave. Well, um, he didn't really have any place else to go at that moment. And so first he tried to convince them. He said, hey, I don't really want to watch these. there anything else we could watch. I'm not, I'm not sure we're supposed to see this. Um, and... His friends were like, ah, don't be a nerd. Don't be a loser. It's fine. This is going to be awesome. It's going to be so much fun. So they start the movies, and um, Paul's son decides he's going to go get a snack. Um, And he goes to the kitchen, leaves the basement, goes to the kitchen, and for the next two and a half hours, he consumes more soda and chips than he's ever consumed in his life because he just stays in the kitchen while the boys are downstairs watching the movies. And then his friend's parents come home, and they're like, what the heck are you doing up here while the boys are all downstairs? And because he doesn't have a better idea, he just tells the truth, and he says, hey, I just didn't want to watch the movies they were watching. And i got to imagine, if I'm those kids' parents, my first thought is, I'm so embarrassed that my kids made those decisions and, and picked stuff that wasn't appropriate and did it behind my back. But then I'm thinking, what in the world is this kid's parents doing? That he had the kind of courage and fortitude to say, no, I'm not going to go down there. I already know what's good and not good and I'm going to stick to what I believe. And, and the, the answer is, you got to prepare for the tests, right? Because the tests are going to come and you got to be ready for it. you got to live your life again and again saying, Jesus, you're the one who gets to tell me what's right and what's wrong. And, and when the tests come, I'll be ready because I'm going to focus on that every day. So uh, we, we come to Matthew 17, and we're back on the mountain again. And Jesus is there, and he is transfigured. It's like he's, he's like a light bulb, he's like a burning bush or a pillar of fire or a tree of life on this mountain, and they can barely even look at him. And then all of a sudden, the greatest heroes of their faith, who are dead, are back alive and talking with Jesus. And then all of a sudden, there's a cloud, like the the shekinah glory of God is all around them. And then they hear the audible voice of God. And you notice, do you notice what Peter said? I love Peter. Peter's my favorite. Um, Peter says, Lord, it is good for us to be here. I know what's good, Jesus. We should stay right here. You notice what the voice of God says to Peter? This is my son, the beloved. With him I am well pleased. Listen to him. You want to get back to the mountain, back to the garden, back to paradise, back to a perfection. You want to experience Uh, the brilliance of God and the resurrection of the dead and the kingdom of God that is to come in this life and in the next, then just listen to Jesus. Just listen to Jesus. Let Him tell you what's good and what's not. He's the Father's beloved Son. Listen to Him. Amen. I'm going to invite you... uh, as we continue to worship, um, to reflect on how God's calling you to listen to him today. And um, I hope that there may be a place um, where you see God calling you to redefine what's tov and what's ra in your life. And I hope this might be a day where you shape that more into the image of Christ than into the image of yourself. May it be so. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.